legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is David Birch, who joins us to discuss Pandora's book, 401 Philosophical Questions to Help You Lose Your Mind with Answers. Philosophy is the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality and existence. Although generally considered an academic discipline, all of us at some point in our lives engage in philosophical reflection, often in times of change or crisis. This turn inward sees the mental bandwidth normally occupied by everyday banalities given to thoughts of meaning and purpose in life and may result in profound personal growth. However, mainstream education, committed as it is to churning out obedient workers and compliant consumers, does not encourage deep meditation on life's big questions. If it did, few of us would be living the lives we now lead. Hello and welcome, David, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks, Greg. Today, David, we're going to be discussing your new book. It's entitled Pandora's Book, 401 Philosophical Questions to Help You Lose Your Mind with Answers. Before we jump into that, uh, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Um, So I uh, I teach philosophy um, at a school in London, and uh, I've been teaching philosophy now for about the past 10 years. But prior to working in this school, I also did a lot of work with a charity called the Philosophy Foundation. And what the Philosophy Foundation does is they go into schools and um, workplaces and, and other areas in the wider community just to sort of promote philosophy and introduce it to people who um, may not have had access to it otherwise. Um, so that would involve sort of going into um, inner city schools, hospital schools, but there are schools of philosophy and philosophers, and you can take a philosophy philosophy courses of various types, and you can buy all sorts of books uh, on the aforementioned. But to me, there is a way, and you'll be do a better job than this of me. There's a way of characterizing it really to someone. I mean, I remember the first time I was introduced to someone, and the person who was doing the introduction said, "This is this is so and so. He's a philosopher." And I remember thinking, okay, and what is, what is that? What do you do? But there is a simple way of characterizing that actually boil it down for people who think, oh, philosophy, I don't even know what it is or it's not for me. That really everyone, more, most people at some point in their lives will find themselves philosophizing about things. It's really just when you're considering something deeply or pondering. And so it's, it's not, uh, people will think of it just as an alien and elitist field of of, of study and human thought, but there, there, there is such a thing as popular philosophy. And I, um, one of the things that I, I like to try and do when I d- do any discussion with, shall we say, a philosophical bent is, is open that up to people, you know, that really this is not, this is not something you cannot, you know, you shouldn't feel you cannot be involved in this. In fact, you are, whether you realize it or not. Yeah. Well, I think, um, 
what what philosophies in, in a way is it's moving from and it might be prompted by uh, sort of a crisis that occurs um, and this might be an everyday thing and you move from a personal question such as you know why am I doing this say for instance you're um, stuck in a job you don't like you think well, you know why why am I doing this the philosophical moment then occurs when you go from that sort of personal question and to the impersonal question of well, what do I want out of life or what is the good in life um, or again it might be um, something that occurs that sort of shatters your sense of your own identity um, maybe you find yourself behaving or liking things that you, you didn't anticipate and then so you might go sort of from that sort of everyday sort of concern about well, what do I really like or who am I to then the, the broader sort of impersonal philosophical question to say, well, what are we? What is identity? Does identity exist? Um, so what one way of characterizing philosophy, I suppose, is sort of taking those um, personal in moments of crisis, um, which aren't necessarily um, negative states, and then moving, taking the, the step to the impersonal and then sort of broadening that out to questions about the world itself that aren't necessarily focused on your particular circumstances. Um, so I think, of course, everyone has those, uh, the, the personal crises, and then the philosophical step is then just sort of abstracting from that to, the, to a broader, impersonal way of thinking about these questions. Yes, and some people do take, follow that breadcrumb trail or take the, make those extra mental leaps in a situation, you know, as you say, like a personal crisis, a life crisis, or a big life event that changes things, or as you say, something that causes people to question their identity. And some people don't take that step. And I think if you're, if you're in that state, that, that flux, the, the longer you're in it, I should say, perhaps the more likely you are to move on to those other questions. Because if a situation gets resolved quickly, whatever that looks like, I suppose you're less likely to go deeper. Yeah, of course. I mean, it also helps just to, to have available in the environment someone to say, well, if you were discussing this with someone, say, well, that's, you know, that's a really philosophical question. And then that would um, permit you to pursue it in that more impersonal fashion. Well, quite often, if someone is having an, an, an existential crisis, whether they, they realize that's actually what it is, if they do seek not just someone to talk it over with, but if, if they maybe seek help, you know, counseling, guidance, therapy, anything like that, it's bringing an impersonal view to the situation is quite often what the person trying to help them will do. You know, let's just forget about you for a second or think about it this way. And, uh, because, of course, when, when we are caught up, when a situation is personalized and it's very much orientating around us or, the, or ego or whatever, um, it can be hard to see the situation for, for what it really is. You know, they talk about zoom out, you know, and try and look at the bigger picture. Yeah. Um, I mean, it sort of touches on a distinction I drew in the, in the introduction, just to help sort of characterize what's distinctive about philosophy. And the distinction was between philosophy and wisdom. And I suppose I characterize, maybe unfairly, um, but I, I just to help draw out what philosophy is, wisdom is as the attempt to um, attain a resolution. So if we are sort of, we have such a crisis and we discuss it with our friends, one response might be the sort of the wanting the wise response. So wanting to offer the solution, offer, say the thing which will um, make the problem disappear rather than thinking, actually, the problem may be an opportunity, or, you know, it may lead to something else, or it may be something worth exploring. 
Um, and resolution isn't necessarily the answer. But I, I would like to stress, I don't think, you know, these sorts of, uh, crises are necessarily ones that would, you know, always be uh, an ordeal or, um, I mean, it could be something as inconsequential seeming as looking at a clock and seeing the ticking hands and then just thinking, well, what goes on between the seconds? What goes on when it goes from one second to the next? Does it pass through? What what other time periods does it pass through as it gets there? How how far can we divide that gap? Um, is it an infinite gap between the seconds? And if it is, how how do we ever get from one point to the next? And those can sort of be just the idle moments. And maybe a better way of characterizing it is not necessarily a crisis, but sort of uh, states of interruption. Um, states in which the ordinary flow of life is suddenly interrupted by sort of an extraordinary thought or uh, an extraordinary problem, which we, we hadn't quite anticipated. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. It doesn't have to be a crisis. That was just an example, I think, that a lot of people can identify with, you know, that they if something did happen in life that turned things on their head, that they may have found themselves going down certain avenues of thought that they hadn't before and asking big questions. But, yeah, it can just be a daydream, can't it? Mm. Uh, you can yeah, just, yeah, just staring into space, and, and in fact, it's a quite a receptive state of consciousness. That's that uh, att- you know that state of attention. I can't, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but you know, you're not you're not keenly focused on something. You're you're just looking out, staring out the window, or or <clears throat> lying on the in the grass in the park, looking at the clouds. You know, and that can be a very creative state of mind, actually. But yeah, it can it kind of makes space for some of these questions that in everyday life, when you're thinking about you've missed the bus to work and what you're going to have for lunch and you know you've got a meeting with your boss and then you're you know are we going out this evening and all those sorts of questions uh can can fill up your mind your consciousness <laughs> and leave very little room for uh very little space for these other things i wonder do you think you so you mentioned the sort of using say therapy as a resolution to these problems do you see i mean let's say we've got the two options you've got the sort of the philosophical response which is to to pursue the problem and to go to the impersonal state and then you've got the sort of the personal solution whereby the problem sort of dissipates would you do you think there's a a, a greater value in one over the other well i've never had any kind of therapy or counseling or anything like that but i was simply thinking that that can sometimes be a key to to unlock a situation if a person is perhaps stuck you know that we talked about taking those you know those extra those steps um, into uh, you know, the deeper questions. And sometimes people can get a bit stuck and, and talking to someone else, whether it's a, a professional or not, it could, as you said, it could just be with a friend. It can unlock that. It's just literally a little light bulb of saying, okay, I can look at it from a different angle or I can maybe take the me out of it. Like, do I need to remove my emotions from the situation? So it was just a question, a way of unlocking or unblocking perhaps is a better way of putting it, um, you know, a thought process. But I, I can't say, I mean, certainly, if I have, when I have experienced times of crisis in my life and it have caused me to, you know, ask big questions, I mean, what am I doing? Where am I going? Why did this happen? Uh, why didn't it happen? I would be resistant not to talking to other people about it, but I've, I've always, you know, looked within, as it were, just, well, you need to go within, go deeper. The, the answers are within you, if you see what I mean. And I think even if you do talk to someone else or a professional, the, the answers are still in there. I think, um, the value of philosophy is, I suppose, is that if, when you do sort of go then to the impersonal s- state, you can, you can then recognize that actually there's a whole broader conversation that other people have been having for, um, hundreds of years about these questions. Um, and so 
it allows you to participate in something greater, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, science and religion and, and you know, Western science came in large part out of Christianity. These uh, are counterparts to philosophy in a way. You know, they're trying to trying to provide answers to some of the some of the big, really big questions. I mean, one of the reasons I was drawn to your book is because so many of the the questions are are very long standing, just eternal questions, really about about life, the universe, and everything. But the the opening titles uh, to the Legalized Freedom Show uh, include the words "Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going?" And this ultimately is what I'm doing, what it's really about. So, and I've often looked at, um, you know, I've, I've spoken about this very often with with scientists, uh, with spiritual people, and. Some of these questions have been around, well, as long as we know, and we still, despite what religious protestations, pardon the pun, and, you know, the current science, believing that, you know, we've explained X, Y, and Z, really the big fundamental questions, why are we here, where do we come from, where are we going, these are as open as they ever they ever were. And, you know, maybe it's not our... Um, we have this idea that the human mind is somehow should be able to figure out all these things, but we've got no real reason when it comes down to it to think that we can work our way into answers uh, to these big questions, you know, but, but we still seem, seem compelled to ask them, don't we? And that, to me, that's really, really interesting. You know, here we are grappling with these things and would, you know, how does it serve us? Does it serve an evolutionary purpose? The other animals on the planet, other creatures, do they, do they lie awake at night asking, you know, what's it all for? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, perhaps one of the distinctive things about us as animals is that we're not restricted to certain environments. Um, so we're able to in, inhabit different parts of the planet with different conditions. And we don't as such have um, a home on the planet. We don't have habitats in the way other animals do. And that um, ability to sort of break free of certain territories and habitats is, is maybe something we also possess in a cognitive capacity too. The conceptual, so, you know, we'll have our physical environment um, and then we'll have the conceptual environment, which is uh, connected to that, which will involve, say, uh, concepts to do with, say, time or property. But um, maybe the... The, the capacity we have, the philosophical capacity we have, um, to go beyond those, uh, that conceptual familiarity and, and explore new territories of thought is, is correlated to the, the physical ability we have not to be restricted to any given environment. Well, it's bound to be a contributing factor, I would have thought, directly or indirectly. I suppose imagination, the word imagination comes into play here. That's what I was meaning earlier when I was thinking about other creatures not pondering existence, you know, they're just putting one foot in front of the other, even some very highly intelligent creatures. What whales and dolphins think? How can we know that? There's a, there's a whole interesting sub-area there to get into because that's clearly very high degrees of intelligence, but we can't uh, communicate with them. Well, we can, but in fairly limited ways. But for most of the rest of life, this uh, you know, we, we're conceiving of things that not only are beyond our immediate environment, our immediate uh, requirements, you know, our survival needs, you know, sort of like, like in Maslow's hierarchy, you know, we, uh, once we have those needs fulfilled, 
then all this other stuff comes into play. We can do that. We can conceive of things that do not exist, uh, whether in our immediate environment or we you know we've explored most of the world. So uh, yet and yet in all, a lot of the things that we have imagined, you know, we can imagine, for example, colonizing Mars, but we can't make it happen. Certainly not at the moment. But people imagined men flying in the sky and machines. And that's been imagined actually for thousands of years. And we did manage to make that happen. So I think imagination is is important in this somehow. Yeah, I suppose that's um, that's the sort of uh, equivalent ability, right? To not just be limited to a particular habitat, but also not to be limited to a particular time, um, and to um, to uh, to think of, I suppose, what it is. It's a matter of being able to conceive of uh, other possibilities, which is also means that we are also prone to regret because we're able to think about how things could have gone differently. And so, you know, with these wonderful abilities of, of imagination also come the the, um, the forms of suffering and pain that we can't imagine animals experience. Yes, it does. That, that, that's And sometimes people who've endured great suffering or have just... That, that I've, I've read so many times people saying, wouldn't it just be better off, you know, if we had been just stayed, let's just assume that the, the whole out of the... The jungle or out of the savannah, these theories of human evolution have got, um, hold some water. Uh, wouldn't it have been better if we just stayed in the trees, really? Just, you know, eating fruit and, and breeding. <laughs> I don't think so, of course, you know, but some people, they feel it's like there's more. How can I put it? The thing that, that makes us so amazing as a species. And I know some people just refuse to even, you know, they look around at the world and just go, what a mess we've made of. But the thing that I think makes us so amazing in a way is the thing that also makes us so impoverished. And it is the things that you spoke of, you know, like the, the regret, making mistakes, screwing things up. You know, we, we've done so monumentally many times, but, but equally we can look at, you know, the great history of art, creativity and all the positive things that we've done. But either way, we, good and bad things, we've done a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, maybe the the challenge is to sort of develop a asymmetrical imagination, one which is forward looking rather than backward looking, to overcome those. I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, of course, there's value in thinking about um, counterfactuals in in the past because that enables us to not repeat mistakes, I suppose. But yes, then with that uh, comes regret, and um, and as you say, I mean, you know, you think of the Abrahamic religions of, uh, founded on a, a sense of regret a sense of um a mistake that had been made in the past and been uh cast out of eden and so it it seems it seems to be a pretty um intractable emotion it does but like guilt as well falls into that that category these things in some ways are useless unless we just simply learn and, and from them and move on yeah. Um, you know, it's just endless cyclic churn of regret doesn't, doesn't get us anywhere. So, and also, of course, that our understanding of our own mortality, that seems to be something unique to human beings, doesn't it? And that p- plays a huge part in some of the questions I think that we, we ask ourselves. I'm not so I'm sure about that. I mean, I think there are maybe different ways of understanding mortality. So, a fox being hunted presumably understands its mortality in a, in a visceral bodily sense. It, it has the, it is compelled to flee. Um, and that might be 
seen as, well, they're just escaping danger, and what they have is a sense of danger and harm, and not necessarily the state of non-existence uh, which, which could follow from that. But if there weren't an understanding of death on, on mortality on some level, it, it might, well, it, it might mean that, that evolution wouldn't have occurred. But I suppose you mean mortality in a different sense of that, not not just a visceral sort of bodily awareness or fear of it. No, it's death. it's it's living either you know living with the the knowledge because you know we all do living with the knowledge that one day we will die, and um, the question of like what's what's beyond that, if anything. Uh, but you know we don't. Of course, some people do you know claim to not think about it, but it's it's there. It always manifests itself in some way. In, in our actions or inactions, you know, people who say, oh, I never think about it. You know, you, maybe you don't, but it still affects, subconsciously it's affecting your life. And uh, if, if we you give the example of a fox, I mean, sort of, uh, these mammals are, are I presumably, are not spending their, their, their downtime, their quiet time with anything going through their minds. Uh, any understanding of, as you say, that state of non, non-existence. And uh, if they, if a fox is, sat in its lair and dogs come. I mean, if it's the first time it's ever happened in a fox's life, does it know to get out of there? Does it, does it, does it have learned certain learned instincts? You know, this is where for people who've been listeners to the show for a while, you've probably heard interviews with the biologist Rupert Sheldrake and his idea of morphic resonance, you know, that that instincts and traits get passed down genetically through species. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, I'm in in us, you know, yeah, I'm talking about that, that different sense of that questions for that for most people this is why i guess that religious people has been proven in in studies tend to be happier than the non-religious people because they have whatever it looks like and however whatever substance there is that you know they have this view of something beyond death that it's not the end and a lot of people live with this you know struggle with this realization that they this is, they fear i think total annihilation the idea of of everything that they ever have been or will be one day will be utterly wiped out. What's so fascinating about that was that um, Epicurus and Lucretius, you know, presented this as the good news. Mm. That that was their antidote to, to disquiet and anxiety and suffering, um, because they identified people's suffering as, as largely coming from their fear of what would happen after they died, um, whether it would involve pain or some just sense of profound deprivation. Um, the concept of of heaven wasn't really it, it didn't it didn't really exist in the way it does now. But they then their sort of solution to this, the remedy was to say, well, no, look, you have to understand that we are just finite beings, and, and after death, it's just it's non-existence. And so, look, there's nothing to fear. Isn't that wonderful? Um, and I think you're right in that. For us now, for many people, that's that's a source of terrible anxiety. And it's such an, an interesting reversal that for, for the Epicureans, this was a source of great pleasure and, and, and joy. Well, yeah, I mean, and some people, the sort of merciful release idea, some, some people, again, you know, who are terminally ill, who have suffered greatly, you know, do look upon it that way. Was it, I was trying to remember if it was Quentin Crisp or not, but it might have been a sort of public figure, you know, public artist, intellectual. That, but I think it was him. And towards the end of his life, basically just say, you know, I've had enough. He wasn't going to commit suicide, but he said, I've, I've, I'm, I'm ready to go. I've had enough. And, and you know, people quite often do. You know, when when your mind gives up, your body can often follow. Yeah. So, and some people people just look up to that. You know, they've 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 lived enough, and whether they're 
uh, enduring any profound physical suffering. They may just get to a point where it's like whatever's on the other side, you know, some sort of afterlife or a black void of nothingness. Just, just get me there. I'm done here. Yeah, living enough for, I mean, living um, holistically, perhaps. I mean, Alistair McIntyre's idea is that the the reason why the fear of death is so common is because we don't have a clear idea of what a good life is. And so we don't have a, a sense of a satisfactory end to it. If we had a, an idea of, of why we were living and what we were trying to accomplish with life, we could then sort of see where the terminus would be. Um, there would be a coherence to it. And he thinks because we've lost that idea, or we don't possess it anyway, death always seems like, rather than a conclusion, just an abrupt terminus, a, a terrifying end, a precipice. And so without having the idea of what a good life looks, or what, what form that would take, we can't have an idea of what a, a good death is, or when a good death would occur. Yes, I think that the lack of meaning, the crisis of meaning, as I've written about in various articles and, and a, a denial of meaning and purpose in modern life, certainly in, you know, Western, West or Westernized industrialized society, you know, materialist view of the world, uh, not just in terms of f- philosophical materialism, you know, that 3D reality is all there is, five senses and that's it, but also materialist in terms of, you know, stuff, you know, matter is all that matters and, and just getting stuff is what life is about, you know, having pleasant experiences and acquiring things. But that doesn't fulfill any meaning or purpose. And if you deny there can be any meaning and purpose, then the, the idea of potentially of a good life being um, informed by that is, is, is by definition not there. And it's just interesting that people would kind of trundle through life, not wanting to think about the questions of who they are, what they're doing, what it's for, and then have this, this, you know, this t- terror of this, as you say, abrupt end to life was, well, you knew this was coming. <laughs> and you know <laughs> meaning and purpose it, maybe that's something we just find ourselves don't look for it again it's like stop looking outside for answers stop looking for guidance from your sky god or your scientists or whatever you know and I, but i think we're very much discouraged from doing that in our culture you know it, from talking about death or actually really talking about what life is it cer- certainly it's most people i know never grew up with anything like that it was just you know so super conventional you know go to school get a job you know, do well, get married, have children, you know, depending on your, your your preferences, you know. Talking about those states of interruption earlier, or I think daydreaming, as you called it, um, you know, the, the inability to do that, um, of course, starts in school. You know, when I'm writing school reports, I'll often talk about, oh, they, you know, they, 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 you know, they lack focus or something. And it's, it's partly I'm just clinging to cliches and because I'm trapped for time. And actually, I think it's terrible. I, you know, the, the demand for focus is just a sort of mental coercion. Um, because it's, it, it can be the case that when we're not restricted to the task as such, you know, we can be absorbed in something, but, but still allowing moments of interruption and distraction because that's when the interesting things arise. And, um, and, and by just sort of making students you know, give them the tasks and praising them when they do focus and, and, and castigating them when they fail to do so. It very much it limits their capacity to to think about these questions or to discover them or to have these moments of sort of um, revelatory interruption. I remember biography of Jack Kerouac. He, he recounted when uh, an incident when he was about 10 or so, he was a child, and, and he was just pulling his sled down the road through the snow. Um, and then he was looking into the windows 
of all the houses as he was going by them, and, and he just sort of had this wondered what it's for. What are they all doing? And it was and it was this moment though of it was a lack of focus. He wasn't really concentrated on anything else. But then out of that, his mind was able to to settle on something that actually was a, a really meaningful question to him. And he said, you know, he experienced this sense of bewilderment afterwards, which never left him. But he he saw that as his awakening. And I suppose it's we we don't as a culture and certainly not in education we don't sort of celebrate or cultivate bewilderment um and see the value in it and if we don't allow ourselves to be bewildered then um you know these these questions will not occur to us or at least we won't have the confidence to pursue them because of course it's one thing to arrive at the questions and it's another to believe that you have the resources or you have the capacity to to um to bear that bewilderment um, I just wanted to go also back to something you said earlier about the materialism, because having touched on Epicurus, it's, it, it's interesting to, to see how there was a materialist view in, in, in terms of the stuff of the universe. You know, it all just consists of atoms, uh, the Epicureans thought. But that didn't lead to um, a materialist view uh, in terms of possession and property. And their view was that actually a good life is one that's quite frugal. The, the the pleasures of life are abundant, easily found, um, and they don't require um, acquisition. And Lucretia sort of writes about uh, just sort of lying b- beside a stream on a on a on a warm day, and that can provide you with all the pleasures of life. So it's interesting to see with, with, that there's not necessary uh, connection between a materialist view in terms of um, sort of ontology. And a materialist view in terms of ethics and how we ought to live. Oh no, there there isn't. It's not a necessary connection at all. It just so happens that we find ourselves, you know. But when I use the word materialist in conversations, I, I know I didn't used to do this, but I, I know the more I've explored quantum physics and the the concept of mind being fundamental, consciousness being fundamental in our reality, the more I find myself explaining what I'm talking about when I say materialism, because. Prior to, well, you know, about 20 years ago, if you'd said um, someone was a materialist, I, I would not have thought that that was their a philosophical view. I would have thought, oh, yeah, they've just got lots of stuff. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, you're right about the education system. It really does begin there. And, and the whole thing that you probably experienced the same as me and many people listening to this will have in a conventional uh, kind of Western-style schooling of bell rings in the morning, you go to your first class. We we had, was it 30 or 35-minute periods? at the school I went to. So sometimes you had double periods and science, so you had room to do experiments. But you'd do 35 minutes or maybe an hour of a subject, the bell would ring, and you'd be expected to then switch out. If you got in any way involved in what you were doing, being asked to do, thinking about, or being, you know, the teacher was telling you about, that just abruptly stopped. Bell, uh, and you got up and you moved to another space in the school, and you could maybe go from doing music to mathematics. And then another bell would ring and you'd have your lunch and another bell would ring and you'd go back and do some physics and then another bell would ring. And it was just, it, it was no way to structure learning, really, to my mind. I, I'm not sure of what other forms, I know of some other forms of schooling, you know, like, for, I don't know uh, parents who've got kids in a, in a Steiner school and how things are done differently there. But really, just that, and that does begin, you see that carried on in people's lives that kind of, you know, that desire for structure and and also wanting all the answers to be in, discomfort with uncertainty. You know, I cannot deal with that. I, we don't know the answer to that, so I'm just going to leave that. I want to know what the answers are so I can sleep at night. 
and that militates against uh, you know a lot of the things that we've been saying. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is. It's. It, I mean, if you imagine um, a child before they enter school, the kind of. I mean, Hume says um, through doing philosophy, he felt like he was uh, he'd become an uncouth monster, and sort of toddlers are like uncouth monsters. And of course, by the time they emerge from the hall, that's evaporated and it's it's been um, um, it's been drummed out of them. And and you know, it's sort of simplistic and obvious, but it it, it does seem that a lot of this is just a matter of sort of compliance training, being able to. Uh, follow directives, um, perform meaningless tasks so that you can go on to become a good and productive employee. Oh, that's exactly what it is. I refer um, listeners to um, the work of John Taylor Gatto, the former New York City school teacher, and, 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 and his, his books on this subject is absolutely what it is. And it's um, it's like in Patrick McGoohan's TV show, The Prisoner, the famous one, um, questions being a burden and answers being a prison for your mind, you know, sort of like, just don't bother. <laughs> just be like a lower primate with your compliance training. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's not, um, there's very little emphasis in, in education uh, on um, the way in which knowledge is, is discovered. So subjects are presented as though they are just these immutable edifices and and you enter them and you absorb and then and you leave but not rather than ongoing processes and of course as, as you go further through education at university you, you start to get a sense of it. oh actually these aren't this isn't static this is ongoing but it's it's not something which is which is emphasized or dealt on before that and which then means that it's it's basically alienating because it's just a matter of um, acquiring something from outside rather than thinking it's something which you can contribute to. But if you see it as an ongoing process, then of course it's, it's malleable. It's there for, um, for everyone to, to, um, to potentially have a role in. Yeah. And this is one of the other things that you mentioned the idea of this being a static, a sort of, a, you know, um, immovable object, an edifice, but it's not, it's changing all the time. And, but we do, we see evidence for that, but somehow changes that happen, they have to be very sudden, I think, and stark to what you might characterize as a paradigm shift, I suppose, or to lead to a paradigm shift. Otherwise, they tend to kind of get assimilated into the, the general morass of forward movement. I don't want to call it progress as such, because often that's a misnomer. But so, you know, science or philosophy or religion or whatever it happens to be can be can be changing around us, but we feel that it isn't, if you see what I mean. And so therefore our our perception is that it is static. And yet they talk about uh, all the science books are going to have to be rewritten on this one, but then they're not. <laughs> uh, when I was at school doing physics in the 1980s, we didn't uh, talk about quantum physics at all. I know Einstein's name came up for various reasons, but you would have thought however many decades into some of the major insights of quantum physics that, you know, by that time, it would have been, you know, fundamental to present this to students. I so think I, there is now more of that, uh, some of that, at least on the on the A-level. Oh, yeah, there's cer- uh, there certainly will be by now. But again, uh, let's face it, I'm going back 35 years here, you know, so it's like uh, it, it should have been there at the time. Okay, so uh, let's dive into some of the questions that are posed uh, in your book. So is it, as I mentioned the title at the start, Pandora's book, uh, 401 Philosophical Questions to Help You Lose Your Mind with Answers. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two 
will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>